welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. This is not therapy, this is real life. I'm your host, Anna Lindbergh Cedar, and I'm happy to welcome you back to the show. As listeners know, the Therapy for Real Life podcast translates burnout prevention therapy concepts into actionable self-care strategies that we can use in everyday life. And if you've been following along, you know that I recently took my own little mini burnout prevention sabbatical as I was traveling across the country, relocating from the Bay Area to where I now live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Today, I have the perfect guest to welcome us back to the show as I interview Melody Warnick, who authored the book, This Is Where You Belong, Finding Home Wherever You Are. Melody talks about her research exploring the psychological concept of place attachment as she tried to make her home of Blacksburg, Virginia, a place where she could feel a sense of belonging and contentment. I hope you enjoy today's episode as we talk about different love where you live experiments that you can use whether you're new to the place where you live or just developing a new sense of home and belonging wherever you are. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. I'm joined by Melody Warnick today, who is the author of This is Where You Belong, Finding Home Wherever You Are. Welcome to the show, Melody. Thanks for having me, Anna. I'm glad to be here. Well, I really enjoyed reading your book and it's very timely for me, which I'll mention in a moment, but I know that this book has a very personal story attached to it. Would you mind sharing with our listeners a little bit about the origin story behind your book? Yeah, absolutely. I moved uh, from Austin, Texas to Blacksburg, Virginia in 2012, which is the kind of move that makes people go, why? <laughs> you know, why, why are you leaving Austin, the city that a lot of people really love? And we loved it too. But my husband got a job at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg and we moved our family. Um, we have two kids and uh, started over in this place where we didn't know anyone and had never lived before and came into it thinking, this is going to make everything about our lives better. Um, you know, this is going to be our transformation moment. We're moving to this small college town in the South, and now um, we are going to be small town people, and it's it's going to be amazing. And then we got here and realized that it is a challenge moving to a place where you may not know anyone, and you don't know your way around, and you don't know any of the local culture or customs. Um, and everything feels very foreign and disconcerting for a while. And uh, as someone who had moved frequently before this, my response to the situation was like, well, that didn't work out. <laughs> Let's just move again. Try, uh, uh, try this over somewhere else. Um, but we, you know, my husband had just started this new job. My kids were in a new school. And I realized that perhaps a better approach than simply cutting all ties and moving again 
was to see if I could make myself be happier in, in this new town. I'm a freelance writer. And so I sort of went down this research rabbit hole and came upon this concept in the scientific literature called place attachment, which is this idea that um, people develop relationships with the places that they live that very much mirror our relationships with people in our lives. And it's something um, that can make us happier, can make us help healthier, uh, raises levels of social capital. Um, and it's also, uh, I posited back then, something that maybe I could control. That if I wasn't place attached in the moment, that perhaps that was something I could change for myself. So I developed um, this idea of doing love where you live experiments, which were basically small behavior changes designed to make me feel more comfortable and more at home where I lived. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that, but the spoiler is that it worked. Um, <laughs> and here I am nine years later, still living in Blacksburg and I love it. And I don't want to move, which is kind of a first for me in in a long time, I think I had gotten into a mindset of just moving frequently. And that was the way you solved your problems and made your life better. Um, and now I'm in a place that I love enough. I have put down roots deep enough that I'm happy here and I want to stay, which is a great feeling. That's great news. Melody, I'm really curious to hear about that mindset piece because you call this, um, you know, moving and seeing if you can love where you live as an experiment. And, you know, I'm curious if you went into the experiment as part of the experiment, deciding that you would love where you would live or whether you really left it wide open. And I ask because as a burnout prevention therapist, I talk to people all the time who are evaluating pros and cons of where to live. And then sometimes they get there and they just, they had the same reaction that you did like, oh no, maybe I, sh maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I should move. And we talk about the idea of giving yourself a timeline to not, you know, waffle back and forth on that decision. But I'm curious for you, did you feel decided at the start or did you leave it open and then give yourself a chance to reevaluate later? That's a great question. I think at the beginning I was, um, very much like, I am going to fix this for myself. Um, but I wasn't entirely sure that I could. Um, I was very determined to, you know, based on what I was seeing in the research of behaviors that seemed connected to place attachment. Um, I'm not a scientist, but I pretended that there was a causal relationship there. I, I basically said, okay, if place attached people are people who volunteer a lot in their communities or they're people who spend a lot of time in nature or are civic leaders, then um, I, am, I am going to do those things and I'm going to make it work for myself. Um, but so I was doing these, these love where you live experiments with a lot of hope that I could control the outcome. And, um, but not quite knowing for sure whether I would have the outcome I wanted. I have since, you know, um, since writing the book and having it come out, I, my belief is a little bit altered. Um, 
so it was successful for me. It, it did change the way I felt about my place, but I have talked to people who will say things like, you know, I've lived in this town for 10 or 15 years and I have done a lot of the things that you recommend in your book and I still don't like it here. <laughs> so what I've come to believe is that changing your behavior and working to intentionally change your perspective about a place almost always has some effect, but it may not be enough to really remedy a mismatch. Um, you know, one of the things that I discovered as I researched the book was this concept of place, um, person environment fit, that there are just some environments that fit us better, that, you know, make more sense for our personality or our life stage, things like that. And if you have chosen a place that is just a drastic bad fit, uh, it's hard to, it's hard to really put down roots and feel comfortable there um, the way it might be in a different place. But I still think that making these small behavioral shifts and these perspective shifts can, um, can change your outlook a lot. And that's really important, especially for people who might not have the opportunity to move. They might not be in a, in a place or in a life space where moving is available to them. And this is a way to just make it better. Maybe you're not ever going to make it perfect, but you can, you can make your place situation better for you. I love that you highlight the person and environment fit. That's a really important concept from psychology and listeners to the show are used to me talking about the fact that change is transactional. So you actually can't make a change in yourself without inherently changing the environment around you. And same goes the other way around. If you change the environment that you live in, you're also vicariously changing yourself. And I appreciate that you, you point out the fact that, you know, moving is not always voluntary. Sometimes you can't afford to move or sometimes you have to move for a job opportunity, but it wasn't otherwise your choice or decision, but you had to go where the opportunity went. And so I love that you're focusing on the mindset and what you can bring to that process, whether you're going to live somewhere short-term, medium-term or long-term. And yeah. in fact, you, you highlight some of the different uh, groups, you know, I forget exactly what you call it, the movers, the stairs and one Yeah, other. movers, um, stairs and rooted. So, you know, movers are just people who are in a very mobile point in their lives. Often they're, you know, younger people in their twenties or they're, you know, at a, an extreme end, they're digital nomads. People who aren't even necessarily looking for a connection with their place. Um, stuck are, you know, people who are in a place, maybe they've been there for a long time, but they just don't feel comfortable there. Um, and, and they're, you know, stayers, they're not moving around, but they're not necessarily happy in, in their place. And then you have the people who are rooted. And those are people who may have been in their place for a long time, maybe a short time. How long you've been there doesn't matter as much as sort of your mindset toward where you live, simply that feeling of being at home in a place, which you know, I think comes really naturally for some people in certain places and uh, for other people in other places is something that we have to work really hard to achieve in our lives.
there any timing factor that folks should pay attention to? I think in the book, you mentioned that somewhere between two and four years is a really critical period when you first move to a place and, and how much of that attachment that you form, or do you think it's much more flexible than that? The research that I've seen points at three years as kind of the point where place attachment peaks after you move to a new community. I do think it's more flexible. When I started working on this, this Love Where You Live project for myself, I'd, I'd been in Blacksburg around a year and I did not want to wait for two more years. You know, like that was not comforting at that point to say, you know, place attachment will peak in two more years. Just hang in there till you get there. I wanted to to work to make it happen for myself. And likewise, I think that it's something that um, that doesn't have to peak and then decline after three years. I think it's something that is more likely to sort of um, go in rolling waves. <laughs> we have moments of time where uh, place attachment is higher for ourselves. And that might be based on something as simple as I had a great interaction at the grocery store, you know, something really basic that just makes us feel like I live in a nice place. Or it can be something like someone new moved into my neighborhood and we've become friends. And that has increased my satisfaction living in this place. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have times in our lives when place attachment might decline. And um, I, I, I see that happen very seasonally for a lot of people. Most of us tend to like our places less in winter. Um, you know, there's fewer enjoyable things to do. It's not as beautiful to look at. And then place attachment starts to rise again when spring comes and, you know, it's just glorious and you get to spend more time outside. Or, you know, it, that again can be related to things like, you know, my favorite restaurant closed. I feel less happy about where I live. A lot of place attachment stems from relationships and experiences. So when we have happy experiences in our place, whether that's, you know, I went for a hike or I had a good meal here. I had a fun time at the farmer's market. Those things can make us feel, uh, you know, have more pleasant feelings about our place. And then the relationship element of that too is really valuable that when we feel like we know and trust our neighbors, that we have friends that we can confide in, um, those relationships make us feel more kind of locked in place. They make us feel more comfortable and more rooted where we are. Well, here's where I throw myself into the mix, because as I mentioned to you when we were scheduling the podcast, I just moved myself. I was in the Bay Area, uh, you know, with the brief stint in New York uh, thrown in there, but I was in the Bay Area for about 20 years. So most of my adult life and all of my place attachment was rooted there. And I fell in love with the Bay Area. And of course, you know, made this big decision that I think only would have happened in a pandemic um, with all, all, all of our systems getting turned upside down and um, the, the wildfires were getting really terrible out there. And so 
um, because of the move to remote work, I, you know, called the California Board of Behavioral Sciences. Hey, can I keep my practice? I've, I've been working out of state, and they said I could. I get to keep my uh, remote work, which makes me in a, a very lucky position. And so, of all the places around the world that I could have picked, I picked Minneapolis, which is my uh, childhood stomping grounds. But of course only lived there as a kid. So I'm moving back and it's a 50-50 experience in terms of, you know, fun nostalgia tour, but then things have changed quite a bit since um, I've been home. And so I'm wondering, where would you suggest that I get started as a new old mover back to Minneapolis? Well, I'm curious, do you still have family or friends there? We have um, some family here, some that we sadly had to leave behind in California. That was the hardest part of moving back. But I've got a little, I would call it a little starter community, uh, but that's about it. Well, I, I think uh, the pandemic has been a hard time to move. In some ways, it's been a great time to move. We've, we've seen a lot of people moving during the pandemic because of the switch to remote work. And I think people simply reassessing their lives as a result of this pandemic that has shaken the way we view things. Um, but as we are sort of slowly coming out of the pandemic, I, I would say the number one thing for you or for anyone else who has moved, who has moved recently, is to work on establishing relationships. So for you, if you have, you know, family or old childhood friends, that might be, yay, we're all vaccinated. You know, let's have a backyard barbecue. It's starting to warm up in, in Minneapolis. Um, or it could be, um, you know, simply working on figuring out where do you want to build your community? in in this new place there may be an element of a work community for you um, or for other people um, but if you are completely untethered you know work-wise you don't have any colleagues that you're joining in it, it may be figuring out i'm just gonna i'm gonna join a running club or um, i'm gonna start playing soccer uh, with the local rec league children can be a great entry point for that too um, because they, they want play dates and um, you can meet their parents and join the PTO and, and things like that. So there are, there are a million ways to make friends. And as an adult, it can be really challenging <laughs> to, to move to a new place and completely reestablish your social circle. But I think in terms of ROI, that is where you're going to see the most benefit. If you feel like you have positive relationships where you live, friends um, and family really helps. But if you don't have family, then just making friends, that can go a long way toward making you feel at home in a place. Um, and what I've learned from talking to people who have moved is that even if everything else is in place in, in your community, you know, you love your town and they have great stores and walking paths and a wonderful library and all those things. If you don't have the people element, it's really hard to develop place attachment. It's really hard to just be happy there. Um, so I feel like in terms of triage, working on meeting people and expanding your social circle is number one, even though it's 
um, really difficult. Um, the other thing I would mention to you, especially your boomeranging, you are coming back to a place that you've lived before, even though it's been a really long time since you've been there, there are things that you loved from before, I'm guessing, that drew you back. And so concentrate on those things. You know, what, you know, you talked about this nostalgia tour and, you know, obviously we have to sort of adjust our mental models of places to include, you know, what it's like now and not just what it was like 20 or 30 years ago. But finding opportunities to do the things you love in your new place can make you happier. So, you know, I always recommend to people think about the things you love doing in your old community and see if there's something comparable in the new one. So if it was going to museums, you know, find the new museums. If it was playing tennis, find a tennis court. There are some things that won't be transferable. You know, moving from San Francisco, you are not going to have the, the Bay experience <laughs> there. You know, there will be no walks along the ocean but you might be able to walk along the river or- We've you know, got a lot of lakes here. So right, no shortage land of, of 10,000 <laughs> lakes. Um, so finding something like that, that sort of um, bridges the gap uh, between your old place and your new place. Talk to me a little bit more about that idea of um, maintaining a sense of identity. We already talked about how, you know, that person and environment fit really um, gives you a sense of who you are. And so, you know, thinking about me growing up in the Midwest, you know, I might've been called a crazy hippie on one end of the family and then moving to San Francisco and Oakland, much more moderate liberal, right? Compared to um, folks that were out there. And so you, that can feel, um, you know, it's a little mini identity earthquake as you get to know yourself and who you are relative to that place. And you already gave some good ideas about thinking about what you loved about the last place and seeing if that transfers over. But I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that sense of identity in place. Yeah. So place identity is this idea that our place kind of creates us and allows us to do the things that make us who we really are. But it's a, that's a great point that you make about how our our sense of who we are is shifted by what's around us. So we are who we are relative to the people around us, relative to our surroundings. I've talked to a kind of surprising, actually not surprising, but sad number of people. Um, I'm working on a new book um, that is about uh, how people make choices about where to live and how our places affect in particular our work lives. And um, as I've reached out to people, I've had a surprising number of people mention politics as a reason they've either moved or want to move, that they are in a place where they feel like they don't belong. And it is precisely because of what they saw arise, particularly in 2020, uh, around politics. And, um, you know, it, it's hard to find a solution for that. I talked to one person who was living in a conservative community in California and, um, and eventually left and relocated to Vermont just because they had they had stopped feeling at home in this community um, because 
all of a sudden, you know, and it may not have been that their neighbors changed as people, but they saw evidence of this difference and it made them uncomfortable. So as we, you know, as we grapple with that, whether you're a mover or you're, you're staying put in a community, all of us kind of are dealing with a shifting sense of identity around what our community is doing, who lives here and who we are in this place in particular. Um, and, you know, I think the solution isn't necessarily to move to a place that perfectly matches your politics and, um, you know, makes you feel right at home along those lines. Maybe it is developing a, a sense of who you are that is connected very deeply to your place. Um, and by that, I mean, connecting to nature in, in where you live, connecting to the beauty of where you live. The people in our communities, like I said, are, are really important to our sense of place attachment. We do want to feel like we have solid relationships in our community. But as those relationships change, we have to be able to draw our sense of identity from more than just you know, my neighbor voted for Trump or, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, but it is a challenge. Yeah. You referenced uh, Robert Putnam's book somewhere in the book who wrote um, Bowling Alone. And he talked about this way back in around 2000, talking about how we're losing a sense of community identity. And he talked about the Elks clubs and Boy Scouts and how participation in those kinds of clubs are declining. And then you look at Ezra Klein, who wrote just recently why we're polarized and it tracks pretty clearly what you're describing that people are kind of bubbling up with folks that um, identify and agree with them. And what would you share with listeners about developing a sense of not just those one on one relationships, but a sense of community that both balances your sense of identity, but also that diversity and inclusion and understanding other points of view. Yeah, when I was researching this new book, I talked to one woman who, um, that was her number one criteria. She wanted to move from her community. She felt she was really liberal, living in a very conservative community and moving to a blue state, you know, ideally a blue city and a blue state was really her her only criteria for this next move and we've seen that a lot we've seen this kind of um uh, aggregation of people uh in certain geographic areas based on political beliefs which is heightening the polarization we see in our country so you know one of the solutions we talk about or that we hear about is we are less likely to feel polarized or to see someone as the other if we are interacting with them up close. I, I have had enough interactions with people who disagree with me politically to realize that those can still be fraught. You know, we can still have political disagreements with people that we're really close to and know really well. But I think um, I think you're absolutely right in saying that. Uh, working on creating a sense of community in a place is the way to sort of short circuit that, that um, when we get involved in, you know, creating better places, in, in building solid relationships with neighbors, we, uh, we feel like we're working for something that's bigger than us, um, bigger than politics, that this is about creating 
good places where everyone likes to live. I know not everyone is a joiner, and, and that's kind of what Robert Putnam talks about in his book, that <clears throat> people are less likely to join groups than they've ever been before. But it is, um, especially when you're new, it is a good solution. If you can bring yourself to join a club, to join a civic group, to start volunteering for a, a local nonprofit in some sort of group setting that can really make you feel a sense of belonging. It can sort of accelerate that sense of being part of the community, even if you don't always agree with everyone around you all the time. talk a, a, about a few different specific ways to do this. One of the ways that you talk about is walking around your city uh, to get to know it better. And as you gave these examples, I started having flashbacks of different times that I've traveled to new places. And one of my strategies when I moved to Santiago, Chile, and I didn't know that big city at all, is I was feeling very adventurous. I'd just get on a random bus and take it to the end of the line and know, well, if it goes out, it must come back. And my agenda was to get lost, to strategically get lost. And we didn't have smartphones back then. And sometimes I'd take the bus out and walk, you know, five miles back. And that was such a great way to get to know the city and seeing how it changed from neighborhood to neighborhood or understand how it was segregated in different ways. And another technique you share is asset mapping, which of course reminded me of my social work training and get, getting to know the local resources around and literally making a map so that you have a visual on what's in your neighborhood. Could you talk a little bit more about that, the benefits of asset mapping? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, asset mapping is this idea that we learn what our community has to offer. Um, it can be something like, you know, figuring out where the stores are that sell underwear and soap and things like that, where you live. But often it's finding people in, in your neighborhood and in your community who can be resources for you. I think um, we saw the benefits of that during COVID when neighbors were all of a sudden realizing the need to be aware of who in our neighborhood needs help um, and who has resources, you know, who, who has a car, who can run to the grocery store and pick up something for the elderly neighbor. It, it's really this awareness of what our community has to offer. I, I love the idea too of, you know, the bus rides where the goal is to get lost. When I moved to Blacksburg, one of the things that, um, that I had already been doing, but that turned out to be especially valuable in this new town was walking in my neighborhood. It is kind of like the one thing I do for exercise. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a runner. But I will take walks and I, uh, there's a lot of research that points to when we walk in our neighborhoods um, and we walk in our towns, especially when they're new, we are, that is how we develop mental maps of our communities. So, you know, you drive through a place and you sort of learn the shortcuts and this road will take me to that side of town. And those are the things that help us feel like we we are part of this community. If I know the shortcut to get from one neighborhood to another, you know, that's, I, I belong here. But uh, when we walk and we're doing it at this, you know, slow, very human pace, 
we notice things. We we observe our neighborhoods. We we get to know the dogs. We get to know maybe the people or the trees or the houses. And it's this slow observation that I think gives us, um, it, it creates those mental maps, but it also creates a sense of ownership, a, a sense of, you know, this is my place. Um, and that's a really what we want to get to when we're trying to create place attachment. For me, <clears throat> when I moved to Blacksburg, one of the things that was hard for me was simply the the aesthetic environment. The landscape was really different. It's, you know, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, it's very hilly, um, very lush and treed, which a lot of people love and I have come to love. But when I first moved here from Austin, Texas, which is, you know, more or less nice and flat, um, it, it felt so foreign and different that I really struggled with it. And, and so my approach to you know, a love where you live experiment that would help me feel better about this place was to spend time in nature in positive ways. So for me, that was hiking. Uh, I live in a place where, you know, the Appalachian Trail runs right by my town. There's a lot of hiking trails nearby. And so I would just, I would just go hiking. Um, and it's something I still do. And it's a way to spend time in you know, the most elemental version of your place that exists, you know, your place without the cement and the asphalt and the buildings, just your place as nature. And it made me feel um, a sense of value for, for what this place was. I, I went camping too, um, as part of a church group. And that was, that also was something that made me feel um, connected to my place at a really basic level in a way that increased place attachment. So I think some of it, you know, when you're looking for what are concrete things I can do to increase my place attachment uh, here, in, you know, in my town, some of it is solving problems for yourself, figuring out what's the thing that makes me the least place attached, the thing that bothers me, and how can I fix it? So, you know, for me, when it was like, ugh, these mountains make me feel kind of claustrophobic, the solution for me was I'm going to spend some time in those mountains in, in a really positive, uplifting way that makes me like it. And you even had a, a mini experiment where you tried to literally put your mark on the environment by uh, doing some guerrilla sign making. I thought that was a really clever way to try to get involved. And there's an organization that helps you do that. Would you try talk to listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is a guy in Raleigh, North Carolina named Matt Tomasulo, who realized that in Raleigh, which is a nice big city, people weren't walking anywhere. They would always get in their car to drive, even if it was just, you know, down the street to the grocery store. And he wanted to fix that. So he designed these signs and had them printed that would say things like, it's a 20 minute walk to, you know, whatever nearby landmark. Um, and he did not get permission. <laughs> he, you know, he did not ask anyone. He just went out at night dressed like a ninja all in black um, and put up these signs on street lamps and, uh, you know, zip tied them on. And 
it almost immediately had an impact. People noticed the signs, people, it shifted people's perspective, which is something that, you know, we've talked about that sometimes it's not, you know, that your place is different. It's you're simply thinking about your place in a new way. And so for them, um, it, in Raleigh, people started realizing, huh, you know, maybe I can walk and I can have those experiences of uh, developing mental maps and feeling a little more connected to my plays. So he also uh, developed a website, um, I think it's called Walk Your City, I will check, um, where anyone could make these signs for their place and, and have them printed and shipped. I think it cost $150. Um, so I did that in Blacksburg and it was really, really out of my comfort zone. It was something that I would never do, except that I was trying to do these love where you live experiments. So I took these signs and they were things like, you know, it's a five minute walk to the cemetery, you know, a historic cemetery, or it's a 10 minute walk to the nature center, places that were close to downtown, but maybe just enough off the beaten path that people didn't notice them. And um, I went out one morning, you know, with my zip ties, completely convinced that I would be arrested and <laughs> I would end up in jail. No one noticed. It was fine. I, I put up all the signs. Um, and then um, shortly thereafter, I happened to be walking through downtown. I saw my own signs. And I realized there was at least one place that the signs pointed to that I hadn't personally been, which was the cemetery. So I walked up the street and went to this historic cemetery, which has, you know, civil war graves and monuments and um, had this kind of interesting experience encountering history in this place where I live in a way that I hadn't before. So um it was it was great in a couple ways. It was great because it encouraged me to go someplace that I hadn't before. And I love that aspect of place attachment, just exploring where you live, which goes back to the idea of getting on the bus and just seeing where it takes you. I am absolutely overjoyed whenever I'm out for a walk and discover some secret path that I haven't seen before. But it was also this idea that we can have an effect on the places where we live. I think sometimes we think that our, our places, that all the decisions in our places happen at very high levels. They're being made by people who are elected officials or people who have a lot of money and they're in charge of things. And as average citizens, average residents, we may not feel empowered to get involved um, and to you know make any of the changes that we would like to see this was a simple experiment that made me remember that, yeah, you can, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of cases, you don't have to ask for permission. You can just kind of secretly make something happen. Um, and a lot of times we have more access to, to having a voice than we sometimes realize we do in communities, um, especially the smaller communities, but even in a big city like Minneapolis, you're probably just a couple emails away from the mayor, or a, a member of town council who is, you know, eager to listen to a good idea. You know, mm -hmm. our places, I think, need us. Um, and sometimes we forget that, you know, sometimes we, we move to a place and we're thinking, what can this place do for us? And I think a positive mental uh, perspective shift that we can make is to think of 
what can we do for this place? You know, what can I do here to make this place better, to build community and to make it a happier place for me to live and for others to live? chat a little bit about uh, that more. So when we look at the systemic issues at play, how do you think about the, the tension between creative placemaking and gentrification? So who gets to belong versus who's pushed out? And for me, this feels very personal when I think back to my experience in grad school. You know, I'm on financial aid and um, looking for student housing and where is affordable to live? And I ended up living in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn and quickly realized that I was part of a big wave that was bigger than me, um, you know, and that a lot of folks were getting pushed out by the hipsters moving in. And I wasn't an ideal candidate for placemaking. I was transient there for a short period of time. I was giving back in my own way through my social work internship, but that was cross town and not uh, exactly where I was located. And you talk about a lot of really great uh, community investment strategies that, that respond to that tension. Yeah, so this is a huge challenge for communities that as neighborhoods get better, get more attractive, that it attracts outside investment. Um, people from outside the community all of a sudden want to live there and that can drive out um, perhaps low-income people who live there who can no longer afford this community. We're seeing this in some ways all over the country right now as the pandemic has sort of shaken loose a lot of people who are now more mobile and are able to make more choices about where they live. And we've seen this resulting um, huge rise in real estate prices almost everywhere mm -hmm. <laughs> across the country. Um, and that makes it really hard um, for, for people to think about how do we make places affordable, but also desirable? One example from the book that I really loved uh, was these sisters, Emily and Ina Doley, who live in this uh, impoverished neighborhood in Philadelphia called West Rockland Street. And um, we're living there during the last economic crash. This was kind of, this is where they'd grown up. They owned a family home on the street and lived in it, but people around them we, were struggling hard. And, uh, you know, in under normal circumstances, maybe they would have just sold their home and left and tried again elsewhere. But because of the economic crash, you know, they're underwater on their house, they can't sell it. So they take this very ground up approach to revitalizing their neighborhood. And they did what's called a clean and green project, which was, you know, we're getting Home Depot to donate some plants. We're teaching our neighbors how to make planters for their, the stoops of their houses. They started uh, mowing the vacant lots and then people built community gardens there. And they, um, they made this place that other people had overlooked a place that the people who were already there wanted to live. Now, the danger, of course, is at that point, when you've made it a desirable place to live, all of a sudden, you know, in investors come in and um, realtors and, uh, and can drive out 
the the people who live there. And it is it is a tough issue um, to handle. But I think, um, you know, no matter where we live, there's value in working to make our places better, even in small ways. When I speak about place attachment in you know, communities across the country, I often will show a picture of one of my favorite examples of placemaking. There was a guy in Germany who made little googly eyes and then put them on things in his town, you know, the mailbox and then the dumpster. And, um, you know, you see these pictures that is just like, um, the trash can is smiling at you as <laughs> it has googly eyes. And I, I always like to tell people, you know, googly eyes are not going to solve our big problems. <laughs> our communities have serious issues um, with, with poverty and, um, you know, a pandemic and drug abuse and uh, things like that. But I think there is value in creating places that are visibly loved that an outsider can come into the community and say, there are people here who value this place, who want to live here. Um, and that doesn't have to be a place that has a Starbucks on the corner that has been fully gentrified. It can happen any place. Um, and it is a sign to the outside world that the people who live in that community value it and are willing to fight for it. Well, I love both those examples of Philadelphia and the uh, Germany one because you're appealing to local experts, right? It reminds me of back when I was a young 20 something, one of my dreams was, oh, maybe I'll start my own nonprofit. And I went to this uh, career fair with a panel of five or six different executive directors. And the, the title of the seminar was how to start your own nonprofit. But then as soon as it started, it became clear. They said, do not start a nonprofit. There are plenty of nonprofits out there, especially in the Bay Area. It's just full of them. And so do not do that. That creates an inefficiency. Go out there, find what you're passionate about and talk to somebody who's already doing it and support them and their efforts. And I think that was a that was a really wise piece of advice that they passed on. And, and you build on that with some um, different financial strategies. If you're not a local expert, give cash. You talk about this idea of a cash mob. When I first read it in your book, I thought, oh, I'm going to write to the editor. That looks like a typo. I thought you were talking about flash mobs, but it wasn't. You knew what you were doing. What's a cash mob? Yeah, so a cash mob is the idea that um, a group of people are going to get together and instead of, you know, flash mob, they're they're not going to dance. They're going to go into a local business and buy stuff. Um, so we are all concentrating our money to support a single local business. Um, my uh, downtown Blacksburg association here was putting on monthly cash mobs for a while. And I went to one and it literally was, you show up, you don't know where you're going. You just know that you have already committed to spending $20, at least $20 there. So I went to this, this cash mob, you know, we're, we're hanging out and the woman in charge comes out and says, we are going to greenhouse board shop, which was a skateboarding shop, you know, in downtown Blacksburg. I am, you know, a 40 something middle-aged white woman. I had never been in the skateboard shop nor had any desire to go, but you know, like I start thinking, can I just leave now? Just kind of quietly slink away. 
but this was a love where you live experiment. Um, one of the things that I write about in the book is the power of spending our money locally uh, as you know, our money does a lot of talking in terms of creating the kind of community we want to see. And uh, with a very online world, it's easy to to get away from that, to, you know, window shop in brick and mortar stores and then go buy it on Amazon where, where it's probably going to be cheaper. But we drive the stores that create uh, value in our community, that create a sense of identity in our place, drive them out of business. So I went along and I went to the to greenhouse board shop and discovered it was not just skateboarding stuff. It, you know, there were lots of t-shirts and sunglasses and cool things. I ended up buying a t-shirt, I think. But um, yeah, it's this collective power that we can organize and in a really small way, choose to help out uh, a local business. I think we saw a lot of that during the pandemic, you know, not called cash mobs, but a lot of people who were worried about the survival of the local restaurants and the local stores and who really shifted some of their spending to, you know, buy gift cards in the very early days of the pandemic when a lot of businesses were closed or just, you know, make sure we are patronizing this favorite restaurant once a week. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in our town, someone created an online tip jar where people who worked in service industries around town who were hairstylists or waiters or, you know, busboys could put their names on this list and people in town could, you know, Venmo them money. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I love that as an example, a really concrete example of caring for your, your physical, literal community. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when news gets overwhelming, it's kind of nice to be able to refocus on a really local level and say, what can I do about that problem here where I live? Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing that with the Black Lives Matter movement. It's not just about ending police brutality, but um, supporting, you know, full and healthy life. So supporting black owned businesses and getting to know your neighbors and investing holistically that way. So I love that. I love yeah, that example. Exactly. Uh, you know, I, I think we saw very small towns put on very small protests in support of black lives matter, which just shows you that it matters to do that in your place. You know, mm -hmm. it, you don't have to live in New York or San Francisco mm -hmm. or LA to no, be part right. of something enormous. And in some way you can make a bigger difference if you're the first one leading that protest. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, you mentioned in your book that, you know, sometimes bad things happen. It reminds me a little bit as you describe place attachment, it, it's building off of what we understand about relationship attachment. And so if we think of the classic wedding vows, you commit to be together in sickness and in health. And uh, Blacksburg experienced its own tragedy with the Virginia Tech shooting. And I believe you were there at the time. And, um, you know, people might go through a, a lot of different experiences that that shake their love of a place or, um, you know, they might be tempted to, to leave because of it, but you talk about the skill of staying loyal through, through bad times. Could you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah. So I actually wasn't in Blacksburg when the Virginia Tech shootings happened. We moved here a few years after that. But one of the things I wanted to do as I wrote the book and as I researched people's resilience in places was to find out more about it. So I, I ended up interviewing a few people who had, who had been here, who had you know, been in the building where the shooting took place. And um, I, I wanted to kind of share that pain because an interesting thing about when our communities suffer tragedies, and you mentioned wildfires that has been huge on the West Coast lately, but you know, one of the, uh, I went to a community in Mississippi that had suffered from hurricanes. Um, you know, we have examples of towns that endure collective disasters, and that's that's kind of the one nice thing that comes out of these tragedies is they do tend to feel collective and they can bizarrely in some ways increase our place attachment. You know, I see this happen every time there is a shooting, uh, you know, across the country, people will start using the hashtag, you know, Newtown strong or something like that, Las Vegas strong. And it will it's a reminder that um, the town suffers when tragedies like this happen, but also the town collectively wants to heal itself. Um, and, and I think that goes back to that relationship piece. One person that I interviewed for the book was a professor at Northeastern University who studies resilience. And he looked in particular at communities in Japan that had um, been affected by the tsunamis. And I think that was 2011. And he found that uh, there were communities that had death rates of, you know, 10%, 10% of the community had been wiped out because of these tsunamis and other communities where no one had died. He wanted to know what made the difference. And in the end, it wasn't things like, you know, distance or the presence of a seawall. It was the level of social cohesion that was found in the community before the tsunami. And it was kind of really practical. It was, you know, do you know that there is a handicapped person living in this house? And are you willing to stop and help them get out and get to higher ground? He called it the, the Mr. Rogers approach to, to building neighborhoods that we need to know our neighbors and we need to know them before something bad happens. Um, and again, I think we saw that in the pandemic that um, there was definitely people reaching out to neighbors they didn't know, but it seemed to happen a little bit more effectively if you already had a sense of, you know, there's an elderly person in this house or, you know, they've seen me around, they might trust me enough to to you know, bring them their groceries or things like that, and I love, I love that idea that even in really difficult circumstances, we pull together and rely on that that collective identity, that place identity of we are, we belong to this town, we are this town, and we will get through this together. Mm. I had to learn that lesson the hard way. I'm remembering when I first moved to 
San Francisco, I didn't know anyone yet. And my um, apartment was broken into in the middle of the night. And the next day I was trying to figure out what happened, knocked on my neighbor's doors. And she said, oh yeah, I didn't know what was going on. I thought a bunch of movers had come in the middle of the night and were moving out. And so ever since that experience, every time I move in, I knock on all my doors and I say, I'm Anna. I'm, you know, this much tall. I don't move in the middle of the night. And, <laughs> right. We will you know, not they, be having movers after midnight. Circadian rhythms and all that yeah and and you know another example of that the owner of uh, a restaurant called toast in san francisco it's quite a famous spot um she talked about having schizophrenia and she opened that restaurant it only sells four items it's black coffee to her famous toast uh grapefruit juice and one other thing these are her comfort foods when she's not feeling well and she walks from her home to uh, toast out in the sunset every day. And she says hello to everyone. She says hello to the police officer and the barber. And so, and she tells them if I'm ever having an off day and don't seem like myself, you know, you have my permission to call my emergency contact. And I thought that was just such a beautiful, um, you know, collective model for public health and safety and, and, and just enjoying where you live and people knowing who you are. I love that. Uh, yeah, because you have to have sort of the the everyday relationship. These are the people that I wave to and they recognize me and they know me. And that allows you to be present for someone who has an emergency need. Um, we, we've lived in Blacksburg for uh, about nine years, but three years ago, we built a house in a new neighborhood. And we moved like a mile from, from where we had been renting. And we moved into this little street and I love the relationships that we've developed with the neighbors in the houses just around ours. You know, our next door neighbor is 94 years old and, um, you know, we chat in the driveway and it's this really rewarding sense of, of helpfulness that we're aware of each other you know that if someone you know we had to go out of town a couple of weeks ago and we asked the neighbors across the street to take our trash can to the curb for for trash day and they were really happy to do that and those sort of little things can go a long way toward building that sense of place attachment. So, you know, to go back to your question about how do I get started here in my new city? I think neighborliness is a great starting point. And it sounds like you already do that. But for people who may be listening and, and may not, you know, knock on your neighbor's doors. Um, if they don't bring you cookies instead of stewing over it, um, maybe take them cookies, you know, take them a, a card with your name and number on it and say, you know, if you ever need anything, just text me because I, I think, um, you know, not all neighbors are great neighbors. We sometimes end up in situations where neighbors are really um, troublesome and they have the dogs that bark all night or they have loud parties on the weekends. Um, but the more we can just develop a, a cordial relationship with the people who live around us, I think the more at home we feel where we live. Well, Melody, before we close out the, the show, I'm going to ask you a little favor because um, something I love about your book is you make it so interactive. This would be a great way to meet your neighbors. You could start a book club and chat about it together. And each chapter ends with a, a love your city checklist of specific action items that you can do. But I was wondering if you would do our listeners a favor and um, 
to close out the show, read the Love Where You Live principles that you have listed on page 257, because these are such um, great guiding principles that you can take with you wherever you go. Absolutely. Um, so these were lessons I learned along the way of working on my own love where you live experiments and and researching place attachment so um number one our towns are what we think they are number two emotion follows behavior feelings follow action three if you want to love your town act like someone who loves your town would act four when you're happy and healthy then you're happy and healthy where you live. Five, if you love your city, you should do what's good for it. Corollary, what's good for your community is usually good for you. Six, relationships with people are what make you feel most at home. Seven, every town is good at something. Do what your town is good at. Eight, put pins in the map. Happy memories create place attachment. Nine, when you invest, you feel invested. 10, there is no right town for everyone, just the right town for you right now. 11, experience joy for as long as you're there. Melody Warnock, author of This Is Where You Belong, Finding Home Wherever You Are. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Anna, it was a pleasure. also offers workplace workshops to help your team buffer against the stresses of daily life. Therapy for Your Life is known for the Burnout Prevention Hackathon, which teaches your team self-care strategies that are backed by research to help you interrupt burnout and promote self-care. Now that work has moved primarily to virtual and work from home, Therapy for Real Life has adapted the Burnout Prevention Hackathon for the online community. Get in touch to discuss your interest in stress management, burnout prevention, relationship building, and other self-care workshops and how to adapt these trainings for your team's needs. 